Then, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. And it was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. Dear Father, we ask that your spirit would work through your word this morning to convince us how critically important it is that we diligently guard the one and only true gospel of Jesus Christ and that we remain steadfastly united in the proclamation of that marvelous good news. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. The passage that we just read is the real-life account of one of the most important meetings in the history of mankind. Now, it wouldn't have seemed so by normal standards of measure. There were no heads of state there. There were no generals, no military leaders. The meeting didn't end a war. It didn't change the boundaries of nations. It didn't occur at a king's palace or even in a courtroom. But it was of far greater importance than any meeting in history that fit any of those descriptions. This historic meeting removed all doubt that God is doing something astounding that His prophets had foretold for many centuries. It proved from the day of this meeting even until today, that God is creating a people, His people, out of men and women from every race, every background, every tradition, and every walk of life, making no distinction between Jew and Gentile, rich and poor, slave and free man, male and female, and that He is uniting all of His people through the exact same life-giving truth. 
the truth of the one and only gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to start this morning by making sure that we understand what made this this meeting, this very important meeting necessary and how Paul's account of the meeting fits into what he's doing and what he's presented already in Galatians. Throughout the first two chapters of Galatians, Paul is laying out a compelling case to establish two things. First, that his ministry, his apostleship, came from Jesus Christ and from no other. Secondly, that his message, his gospel, came from Jesus Christ and from no other. Neither his ministry nor his message were from men in any respect. But Paul's point in these chapters is not to defend himself. His entire point is to protect the church of Jesus Christ against a serious threat that had arisen in their midst. A calculated effort by evil men to turn the hearts of these believers in Galatia away from that one true gospel. The gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, apart from works. In the very first verse of this epistle, Paul declared that his apostleship, his ministry as a messenger of Jesus Christ did not come to him from men in any respect. It was the resurrected Christ himself who directly chose Paul and made Paul his ambassador to the Gentiles. And in verse 11, Paul declared that it was the resurrected Christ himself who gave Paul the message of the gospel that he preached. In the rest of chapter 1, Paul presented his own personal before and after story. What he was like before Christ laid hold of him and what he was like after Christ laid hold of him. And it was as stark and dramatic a contrast as has ever existed among men. It was the resurrected Christ who had single-handedly turned a militant and murderous enemy of Christ and of Christians into a sold-out ambassador of Christ and one who tenderly loved the people of God and who fervently preached the message that Jesus had given to him everywhere that he went. At the end of chapter 1, Paul gave us a little glimpse into what went on in the first few years after Jesus plucked him out of the darkness and gave him that spiritual heart transplant on a road between Jerusalem and Damascus. During those early years after his conversion, Paul faithfully proclaimed the gospel without being under the supervision of anyone except Jesus. Now in chapter 2, Paul picks up the narrative of his own life 14 years later. Much has happened. Paul and his co-worker Barnabas have been used by God to establish numerous churches in the region known as Asia Minor specifically in the southern part of that region called Galatia. And the reason that Paul leaps forward a decade and a half is because that leap brings his readers right up to the point in their own history when this present serious threat to the gospel was starting to gain a foothold in their own churches. And it brings us right up to the point at which God called a meeting. 
meeting unlike any other meeting that had ever happened before. I want to show you where we're going this morning. We're going to talk first about the problem that made the meeting necessary. And that problem was what I call the grace plus gospel of the Judaizers. We'll explain what that means. And then once we understand the problem, we'll see God's strategy through Paul to address that problem. And that strategy is in two parts. First, God used Paul to condemn the grace plus gospel and its advocates. And then God called a meeting. A meeting in Jerusalem, the location of the mother church, of the original church. And He called that meeting to prove something. To prove the unity of the true gospel. Finally, once we've seen the problem and God's strategy for dealing it, dealing with it, we'll look at God's appeal again through Paul to us. What is it that we must do in light of what God has done in this passage? First, the problem. These first ten verses of chapter two of Galatians are all about a trip that Paul took to visit the leaders at the church in Jerusalem. A meeting to address a critical issue that had arisen. And what was that issue? What was the problem? Well, verses 4 and 5 give us the answer. In those verses, Paul briefly interrupts his narrative about the trip and the meeting in order to zero in on the very serious, very threatening issue that had arisen among the Gentile churches in the time leading up to that trip. In verse 4, Paul says, but it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. When he says it was because of the false brethren who had sneaked in, the it is the meeting. It's the, the event that he's narrating in this passage. He's explaining why God sent him to Jerusalem. Now, how do I know that it was God who sent Paul to Jerusalem instead of Paul just deciding to go there? Or instead of the, uh, the apostles and elders in Jerusalem somehow sending word to ask Paul to come and meet with them? How do I know that this was God's idea? Well, Paul tells us in verse 2. He says, it was because of a revelation that I went up to Jerusalem. God told him to go. Just as it was because of a direct revelation of Jesus Christ that he knew his ministry and his message, it was because of, of a revelation from God that he knew that he needed to go to Jerusalem. God was using Paul to address this threat. And this threat affected every Christian everywhere, including the mostly Gentile believers in Asia Minor where Paul was and the mostly Jewish believers in Jerusalem and Judea where the apostles were at that point. In verse 4, Paul says, false brothers had sneaked in to spy out our liberty in Christ and to bring us into bondage. He's talking about the same men to whom he referred back in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. Men who were preaching a false gospel. 
It wasn't an entirely new gospel. It was a distortion of the one true gospel. The real one. These were the men that we know as Judaizers. Jewish men who called themselves Christ followers, but who insisted that every Gentile who converted to to faith in Jesus Christ must also, in effect, convert to Judaism. He must be circumcised if he's a male. He He or she must observe the Sabbaths and the feasts demanded by the law of Moses in order to be received into the community of Christians. Paul's wording here in chapter 2, verse 4 is very interesting because he's talking about a stealth operation. These men had very deliberately misrepresented themselves as believers in Jesus Christ in order to gain acceptance into the Christian community. But they weren't believers in Jesus Christ. And by the way, they knew they weren't believers in Jesus Christ. These guys weren't deceived. They were deceivers. The wording here speaks of false pretense. Spies who snuck in among us. It's very calculated. See, this was not mistaken identity. It was misrepresented identity. Instead of the straightforward frontal attack that Saul had employed against Christians before Jesus plucked him out of the darkness and and made him his own ambassador, these men preferred espionage. They called themselves Christians, but they were spies sent by the enemies of Christ for the express purpose of destroying the church from the inside out. And the way they planned to destroy the church was very simple. Just add a little dose of law to the grace of the gospel. Paul isn't very specific about exactly when and where he had gone head to head with these Judaizers, these phony Christians. But he says in verse 5 that when that confrontation occurred, he and Barnabas did not yield to them for even an hour. And then he explains very clearly why they were so intransigent and unyielding. He said, so that the truth of the gospel may remain with you. With the Gentile saints in Galatia. Paul is saying that if he and his co-workers had given up any ground at all to these phony Christians, it would have threatened to draw the Galatian believers away from the truth of the gospel. It was the gospel that was at stake. And that made this crisis the crisis of the highest order. The message that these nefarious men were pushing was the message that would destroy the liberty, the freedom that is the birthright of every child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. It would have drawn these dear believers back into bondage. The bondage of the law. They had replaced the wonderful gospel of grace with a gospel of grace plus. And here's a little biblical math for you. Grace plus anything equals no grace at all. And it equals no gospel at all. Throughout the history of the church, there have been many versions of the phony gospel of grace plus. And we're going to be talking a lot next Sunday and in the coming weeks about how to recognize 
the versions of that same heresy that exist and threaten the church even today. But we first need to see very clearly how God dealt with the version of that threat that existed in the day that this book was written. Because that will tell us how to deal with the same kind of threat now. It'll tell us how God deals with the same kind of threat now. All right, that's the problem. What was God's strategy to address the problem? Well, there's a two-pronged attack in this passage. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The first point of attack occurred before the meeting in Jerusalem, and the second occurs by means of the meeting in Jerusalem. First, Paul went head-to-head with the Judaizers himself. That's the confrontation we just looked at in verses 4 and 5. Again, he doesn't tell us where or when that occurred, but it was clearly before his trip to Jerusalem to meet with the leaders of the church there. And when Paul confronted the Judaizers, his approach was very straightforward. His approach was to shut them down. It was God through Paul utterly rejected this false gospel. He refused any concession to them and he publicly declared the advocates of this gospel to be accursed, condemned. And the word he uses means hellbound. So the first part of God's strategy was to utterly reject the grace plus gospel and to declare its advocates to be accursed. Paul stood firmly and uncompromisingly on the one true gospel that Jesus had given directly to him. As Steve Lawson says, we are not just dogmatic about the gospel, we are bull dogmatic. If Dan was here, he would hold the tongue. Paul is our example of bull dogmatism for the sake of the gospel. And it's an example we are supposed to follow. But that was just part of God's solution to this serious threat against Christ's church. The second part of his strategy, and the one that Paul spends the most time addressing in the first half of chapter 2, was that God used Paul to prove that he, God, had already created unity in the gospel within his church among both Jews and Gentiles. That was the purpose of the meeting in Jerusalem. The Judaizers' primary point of attack to undermine the true gospel among the Gentiles in Galatia was to persuade those saints that the real apostles of Jesus Christ down there in Jerusalem were preaching a different gospel than Paul. And that their gospel matched up with the Judaizers' gospel that they were trying to impart to the the Galatians. Now, when I, I gotta admit, when I first started studying this passage, I saw Paul's trip to Jerusalem as God's way of saving his church from disunity over the gospel. But the more I looked at it, the more I realized that's not what happened. Because the whole notion that the leaders in the mostly Jewish church at Jerusalem were on a different page than Paul when it came to the gospel was a bald-faced lie being propagated by fake Christians. The disunity over the gospel that these Judaizers declared to be going on did not exist. That doesn't mean that the Judaizers weren't having an influence. 
both in Jerusalem and in Galatia. But it means they were not winning. God sent Paul to Jerusalem along with Barnabas and Titus to prove both to the mostly Jewish saints in Jerusalem and Judea and to the mostly Gentile saints in Asia Minor that he, God, had already created gospel unity in his church. Barnabas was a Jew, like Paul, circumcised according to the Old Testament requirement just as Paul had been. But Titus, Titus was a Gentile. He wasn't half Gentile like another of Paul's most valued co-workers, Timothy. Titus was all Gentile. And Titus was uncircumcised. That's important here. When God sent Paul, Barnabas, and Titus to Jerusalem to meet with the leaders in that church, Titus was Paul's poster child for the miraculous work that God had been doing through Paul among the Gentiles. When Paul went up to Jerusalem with two beloved brothers, one Jew and one Gentile, he wasn't sure what kind of reception that he'd get. Especially what kind of reception Titus would get. Paul says that when he went up to Jerusalem based on a revelation from God, he submitted to those leaders in Jerusalem the gospel which he preached among the Gentiles. And then he makes a major point in verse 2 to say he laid this gospel out to those leaders in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. Now what does Paul mean when he says that he was afraid he might be running in vain? Well, here's what he definitely does not mean. He did not mean that whatever response he got from the leadership in the church of Jerusalem was going to determine whether he had to change his gospel or keep preaching the one he had been preaching. That wasn't going to happen. Both Paul's mission and Paul's message were as settled as settled gets because both of them came to him directly from Jesus Christ. Nobody was going to change Paul's course. What Paul feared was not that all the work that he and Barnabas had done for Christ might have been illegitimate because his gospel was wrong. What he feared was that even though he knew the Judaizers were 100% wrong about him and his gospel, they might be right about the gospel that was being preached by the leaders in Jerusalem. And so he went to those leaders in private to find out. He was afraid there might actually be a, a very serious division between Jewish believers and Gentile believers about what the true gospel is. If the apostles and elders in Jerusalem who shepherded God's flock among the Jews were in fact beginning to embrace the false gospel of the Judaizers, the terrible division that would create in the household of God between Jewish believers and Gentile believers would have had a devastating effect on the advancement of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. A kingdom which, by God's design, spoken through the prophets in ages past, was intended to bring together into one people both Jews and Gentiles. Such a grievous division in the church over the gospel itself could have quickly destroyed 
much of the work that God had accomplished through Paul. See, Paul's fear was not that his gospel might have been the wrong gospel. His fear was that his work might be undone. But in reality, in reality, the deck had already been stacked so heavily against the Judaizers that their efforts to tear apart the church of Jesus Christ were defeated before they ever got started. Because, beloved, the head of Christ's church wasn't Paul or Peter or James or John. There is only one head over the body of Christ and His name is Jesus. And guess what? Jesus knows what He's doing. So when Paul got to Jerusalem and shared with the leaders of that church the Gospel that he had been faithfully proclaiming to the Gentiles, he discovered that he and those leaders were very much on the same page. I want to take you back to flesh out this story a little. I want to take you back to Galatia for a few minutes and ask you to mentally put yourself into the sandals of one of those Galatian believers who first heard this letter from Paul read publicly because that's how they received this letter. As you gathered one Lord's Day with the saints in your hometown of Iconium, the air was filled with anticipation and with more than a small dose of fear. The whole community of believers had heard that a letter from Paul had been passed from the elders in the neighboring city of Lystra to the elders in your town, Iconium. Even though you usually met in a little house church on Sundays, on this particular Sunday, every believer that you knew about in Iconium had all gathered to one place, to a farmer's field owned by the only wealthy man in the church in Iconium. It was a cool, clear day. And it didn't take long at all for everyone to find a plot of ground to sit, sit down and get ready to listen to what was about to be presented. As a respected elder in the Iconium church stood up to read Paul's letter, your mind was racing with thoughts about all the hurtful things that you had been hearing about Paul and about his Gospel. From a small group of Jewish men who had shown up just a couple of months earlier, insisting that they represented the real apostles, men like Peter and John, who had actually walked with Jesus during His earthly ministry, and who represented the real elders in that church, men like James, the brother of Jesus. These Jewish men who had so recently become a regular fixture in all of the Christian gatherings in Iconium, had been saying over and over that Paul was nothing and nobody. That he was a fake apostle with no rightful claim over you or over any Christian. They had been demanding that every man who professed faith in Christ be circumcised. That every man and woman in your, in your whole community of believers observe the Jewish feasts and Sabbaths. Most of the believers in your city were Gentiles who had no idea how all that stuff worked. It didn't even make sense to you or to your friends. But these men were saying that those very things 
were being required by the real apostles back in Jerusalem. And that unless all of you complied with these requirements of the law of Moses, you are, you were still in your sins and you had no right to call yourself a child of God. Now you and, and your close friends weren't buying it. You had heard Paul preach the Gospel right here in your city. And it was through his faithful proclamation that your own ears heard that God had given you eternal life. So you weren't buying the Judaizers' story. But many of the brothers and sisters in your town that you knew very well were struggling mightily over all this. Doubts and fears were running rampant. But as Tertius, the Gentile elder who had once been a slave in more than one sense of that word, got up and began to loudly read Paul's words. You looked over and you noticed that one of those Jewish guys who had been stirring up so much trouble was slowly edging his way toward the perimeter of the crowd. And he had kind of a fearful look on his face. As Tertius read Paul's letter, it was Paul's voice that you heard, declaring that the very same good news by which God had given you eternal life and hope was the one and only true Gospel of God. And that Paul was Christ's own appointed ambassador to bring that amazing good news to all the Gentile people throughout the Roman Empire. You heard Paul give his own very personal testimony of the miraculous transformation that Jesus had created in him so many years before. Then, when Tertius came to Paul's account of his second journey to Jerusalem, the one in this passage, and of his meeting with the apostles and elders there, you listened with tears of joy as you heard his report that the leaders in Jerusalem had received Paul and Barnabas with the right hand of fellowship. Acknowledging the full legitimacy of God's miraculous work through Paul in so many Gentile cities and towns just like yours. James and Peter, also known as Cephas, and John had clearly affirmed Paul as God's own counterpart to Peter for the Gentiles. They were in full agreement that Paul had been entrusted by Christ with the proclamation of the Gospel among the Gentiles just as Peter had been entrusted by Christ with the proclamation of that very same Gospel among the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea and beyond. And they had acknowledged Titus the Gentile as a true brother in Christ. No circumcision required. You knew immediately that there were a lot of very relieved men and boys sitting in the field that day. The only requirement that the Jerusalem leaders made of Paul was that he and his co-workers be, be sure to take care of the poor. But you'd already seen with your own eyes how tenderly Paul loved the poor and the downtrodden. So you knew that he was entirely on board with that request. You particularly enjoyed hearing Paul's repeated reference to the, quote, men of reputation in Jerusalem. He used that word reputation four times. 
He was clearly referring to James and Peter and John and other leaders from the mother church there in Jerusalem. Paul wrote that the reputation of those men made no difference to him because God shows no partiality. He said that those men of high reputation had contributed nothing to him. And you knew that Paul was not being disrespectful to those faithful servants that God had appointed for the care of the Jewish Christians and to proclaim the gospel in the Jewish communities. No, he wasn't being disrespectful to them. He was being as disrespectful as possible to the Judaizers who had made those leaders out to be more credible spokesmen for Christ than Paul was. Now, it was clear that those Judaizers did not represent the leaders in Jerusalem. Those leaders in the mother church had declared Paul's authority as an ambassador of Christ to be co-equal with their authority. And as Paul referred to the men of reputation in Jerusalem, you looked over again at that Judaizer at the edge of the crowd and you saw he was getting further and further from the crowd and he was now covering his face with his hands. The Judaizers had just been exposed as liars. To use modern parlance, they they had been busted. The one true Gospel had been vindicated and so had Paul. Tertius went on to read all the rest of Paul's amazing letter. There was much in it that came as a stinging rebuke against anyone who was leaning even slightly in the direction of the Judaizers. You knew that there was much in that letter that you'd be hearing over and over again at the Sunday gatherings and that you and all of your beloved brothers and sisters would be pondering and praying about and talking about and seeking to act upon for a long time to come. But that afternoon, your mind kept coming back to Paul's account of this amazing trip to Jerusalem and you couldn't wipe the smile off your face. That beautiful Sunday afternoon in that same farmer's field in Iconium, you and your brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ had a potluck to end all potlucks. You feasted on a big plate of bacon-wrapped lamb chops with a side of ham and limas. Your Jewish friend Mark, a dear brother and friend in Christ, went for lamb chops that had been grilled separately without the bacon. But he sat down and he ate right beside you. Both the food and the fellowship were all very, very good. And those recent arrivals who have been stirring up so much doubt and fear were nowhere to be seen. Maybe they weren't hungry. The outcome of Paul's meeting with the Jerusalem leaders was a dramatic turning point for the early church. It was proof for all that God was right in the thick of the battle with them. That both Jew and Gentile were truly being united by God in one household in Jesus Christ by grace through faith by believing in the one true gospel that was all about Jesus Christ. So how does all this affect us? Well, the implicit appeal in these first two chapters both to the Galatian saints and to us 
is again twofold. God had a twofold strategy to deal with the problem, and there's a twofold charge to us. The first is that we are to stand firm in the one true gospel. Don't mess with it, and don't tolerate those who mess with it. Proclaim it confidently and accept absolutely no substitutes or modifications. I want to go back for just a moment to the two verses in this passage that we looked at that talked about the problem that gave rise to Paul's visit to Jerusalem. About the opposition that Paul had encountered from the Judaizers. What does Paul say in verses 4 and 5 about these false teachers? What is it that they wanted to accomplish? Well, he says in verse 4, they wanted to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus in order to bring us into bondage. They wanted to put an end to the freedom that actually belongs to us in Christ and to put us back into bondage. Freedom from what? Freedom from obligation to a law that can never save and that serves only to condemn. Bondage to what? Bondage to that law. Or any law. And what in the very next verse does Paul say was at stake in this assault against the freedom which is the birthright of every believer in Jesus Christ? What was at stake was the truth of the Gospel. Paul and his co-workers Barnabas and Titus didn't give an inch. He says we didn't yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the Gospel might remain with you. Paul is saying as straightforwardly as he possibly can that if he had compromised even a little, if he had in any way endorsed the Judaizers' demands by, for example, requiring Titus to be circumcised, he would have been trashing the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That's still true for you and me right now. If you say that you're standing firm on the one true Gospel, that means something. It doesn't simply mean that you say the right things about Jesus and what He accomplished through His death and resurrection. That's clearly front and center in the Gospel. But it also means that you defend without compromise the freedom that God's grace in Jesus Christ gives to every believer from law-keeping. A lot of Christians have a major hard time with that. See, this is not just about freedom from keeping the requirements of the law of Moses. It is freedom from law-keeping as a means for us to be righteous in the eyes of God. In order to keep this charge to be true and, and to staunchly defirm the Gospel, we cannot and we must not go back to the yoke of slavery which is law-keeping. Every single time that the slave masters of that terrible, life-robbing form of bondage rear their ugly heads in the church, we must oppose them without compromise and run them out the door. In this passage, that is the means to stand firm for the Gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about people who are struggling with legalism and trying to figure it out. I'm talking about the advocates of legalism. 
this is important, how much law keeping can you introduce into the issue of how we are made righteous in the eyes of God without denying the Gospel? None. In Galatians 2.21, Paul says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. In chapter 5, verse 1, he says, It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. As soon as you add even one single requirement of law-keeping, Christ is of no benefit to you. A gospel of grace plus is no gospel at all. We're going to talk a lot about this. If this is unclear to you, if this sounds crazy to you, please stick with us because Paul's got a lot to say about this. About the relationship between law and grace. Or rather, the absence of a relationship between law and grace. And we need to get it right, beloved. That's the dominant theme of the entire epistle. A gospel of grace plus is no gospel at all. So we're going to talk a lot about it. Now, what do we do today that messes with the marvelous gospel of grace? Well, our error today is certainly not that we require every male to be circumcised. Right? And I don't think I've heard anyone here insisting that we keep all the Jewish festivals every year. So does that mean that we're not facing any real struggle today against a gospel of grace plus is there really no modern equivalent for the error of the Judaizers? Well, if there weren't, we could end our study of Galatians right now because that's what this book's all about. But that's not the case, is it? I'm going to give you an assignment for next Sunday. I don't usually do that. I'm not asking for a show of hands, but I'm asking that each of you, each of you, resolve to get your family together at least one time this week the sooner the better. And you actually talk about this. If you're single, grab another family in this body and invite yourself over for dinner and tell them that I told you to. And when you get together, sit down and talk for a while about what kinds of things we add to the Gospel that therefore threaten to negate the Gospel either by our words or by our actions. And if you want a great example of how actions can change the message, just read the next passage, the rest of Galatians 2. That's what we'll be talking about next time. And then, if you'd be good enough to email me one or two of the things that you came up with before next Sunday, I'd appreciate it. And I will give them serious thought to, 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 and, and make sure that that some of those get uh, get directly addressed. But the main point of this assignment is not how it impacts the next sermon. The main point is that if you will do this, then when you come next week, if you've got one thing in mind that we, that you, struggle with adding to the Gospel, you're going to be very prepared to understand a very powerful passage that we'll look at next time. If anyone doesn't understand the question, email me, text me, call me. 
Before we close up this morning, I want to briefly point out that there is a second appeal in this passage. Not only are we commissioned by God to stand firm for the one true Gospel just as Paul did, we are to be devoted to unity in that one Gospel among all of God's people. Paul's own life experience is presented here not just so we'll say, way to go, Paul! Way to stand up for the Gospel and pursue unity in the church. No. This was given to us as an example to be followed by all the people of God. Paul didn't merely hold fast to proclaiming the Gospel to the Gentiles and defending it against local opponents. He traveled a long distance to have a face-to-face visit with the leaders of the Jerusalem church, fearing that they might have begun to embrace the false gospel of the Judaizers. He was elated to find out that he was wrong, but he didn't know that he was wrong until he got there. And he went ready to do battle for the one true gospel because he was absolutely bent on seeing the church unified in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Why did he make that journey? Because God told him to. It turned out that God didn't use him to resolve disunity, but to affirm gospel unity that God had already created in his church. But again, Paul didn't know that when he took Barnabas and Titus and headed for Jerusalem. He was ready to go head-to-head with the most respected leaders in the church in the world in his day. Are you willing to do that for the sake of the unity of the Gospel? Martin Luther was called upon to do that. I've got a great story about Charles Haddon Spurgeon. When he stood up for the veracity of the Bible and was voted down and censured by a vote of 2,000 to 7, he was undeterred. His wife said it cost him his life because his health failed steadily from that day forward. Are you willing to do that for the sake of the unity of the Gospel of Jesus Christ? Philippians 1, verse 27, Paul says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the Gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the Gospel. It is the Gospel that unites us. It is the Gospel that tells us what our mission is in this world. It is the Gospel that tells us our very purpose for existence in this world. And if we are not united in in that Gospel, anything else that unites or divides us is irrelevant. There are two things that we must always have in mind, firmly in mind as we daily take up God's commission to us to diligently preserve Gospel unity in His body. First, we should assume that Satan is going to do everything he possibly can to destroy that unity in the Gospel. If if he can get us preaching different Gospels, he's crippled the church. But there's a second thing we absolutely must have firmly in mind. And that is that this is a battle that God Himself is fighting right alongside us. And He's winning. And the outcome is certain. Beloved, we're on the winning side. 
One more minute. Paul had no reason to be surprised when Peter and James and John extended to him their right hand of fellowship and affirmed that there is only one marvelous gospel when they affirmed that their gospel was the same as his. But we struggle. The tendency of our flesh is to add something to the grace of God. The grace that He has poured out on condemned sinners, that's us, by pouring out the precious life's blood of His own Son. But beloved, we now recognize no man according to the flesh. As we appeal to one another for gospel unity, we are appealing to a new man and to a new tendency. A tendency in us that God created. A tendency, an inclination that loves the grace of the Gospel and that loves the grace giver. So our pursuit of Gospel unity is never a panicked pursuit. It is a joyful pursuit with a certain end. Because we know that the head of the body knows what he's doing. Dear Father, we come to you knowing our weaknesses and our infirmities, but there is one who died for our infirmities. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we have been healed. You've given us a marvelous gospel to proclaim. You've called us to cling to it to accept no adjustments. And we pray that you would, you would convince us always, Lord, to be steadfast in clinging to that amazing good news. And we ask, Lord, that you would use this body powerfully to proclaim it far and wide. And that you would unite us with great clarity in the message of truth. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name.